If you have your Bibles today, our text is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 12 through 13. Uh, there's a, a Bible there in front of you, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. So there's a story told of a boy, you know, you can imagine this being years ago, a uh, story of a boy who is uh, standing in front of a shop, maybe one of those old-time shops, grocery stores, and he's standing there in front of the store, and there are these big baskets full of shiny red apples. And so the boy is looking there at the shiny red apples, and he's hungry, and he has no money in his pockets, and he's just standing there, you can imagine, just staring there at those apples. Well, the shopkeeper notices and walks out and says, Boy, are you trying to steal one of my apples? And the boy looks at him and says, no, I'm trying very hard not to steal one of your apples. So we can hear that story and we can say to ourselves, I know exactly what that boy means. We can identify, we can relate to our struggle with sin. But have you ever considered what a blessing it is that we are able to relate to one another? in that struggle. None of us like to struggle with sin, but what a blessing that we can talk about our struggle with sin, that I can come up here and I can describe that, and you can say, I know exactly what you mean, because God has allowed us to be able to relate to one another. As Jake was talking about corporate prayer, what a blessing it is to come together and to be able to pray together and realize all the blessings that come from God allowing us to have relationships with one another. Every Christian is a minister of the gospel. Every believer can use God's word to minister to others. This is what we're really talking about in our biblical counseling course on Sunday nights, is that really all of us are called to make disciples. And we make disciples by using God's Word. That's what the Holy Spirit has told us that God is going to work through to change people, that we could minister to one another as we do the work in the Word. We can have conversations. We can identify with people. We can empathize with people and their struggles. Well, how is this possible? Well, our text today teaches us that all people share a common experience in the struggle with sin, and God-given provision to escape it. If we were going to sum up the entire sermon in one sentence, that would be it. All people share a common experience in the struggle with sin, and we also share a God-given provision to escape sin. So let's look at the text. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 through 13. Verse 12, the Apostle Paul says, So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you beyond what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Verses 12 and 13 tell us about three things that you could write down on your notebook or in your Bible. They tell us about a predicament, they tell us about a principle, and they tell us about provision. So if you'll notice there, if you're scoring the sermon, that's really nice alliteration that I worked hard on. <laughs> predicament, principle, and provision. First, let's look at the predicament. 
Paul is warning his readers that they are playing fast and loose with temptation and sin. Yesterday, Verma was sharing her testimony, and she described herself as a young woman. By the way, if y'all missed the March for Jesus, did anyone record that, Shirley? Do you know? That was, I mean, I, I looked over at Dan, and I said, Dan, Verma is just, she's better than most preachers I've ever heard. She was up there, she was letting her test, she was just letting it go, giving her testimony. She said, when I was a young woman, I was sassy. <laughs> she's still kind of sassy. <laughs> <laughs> It's just sanctified sassiness now, right? <laughs> but what Verma was describing in her younger days is this, this predicament, that we're always standing there at the edge, aren't we? Because we live in a fallen world with broken people, it seems as though we're always playing fast and loose with temptation and sin. And specifically, the way these people were sinning against one another was regarding their eating of meat. And you'll notice it's an interesting thing throughout the Bible that the eating of meat that had been sacrificed to idols and circumcision run through the New Testament. You would say, why is there such an emphasis on these things? It's because their understanding of the meat eating and of the circumcision was one area where they tended to put rules on each other, where they tended to sin against one another, where they tended to become prideful against one another, where they sin, uh, tended to wound one another in their actions. Now, in 1 Corinthians, the issue is eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. So you're like, what does that mean? Well, if you can imagine back there in the first century, in the ancient world, when you would go into a city, there would be all sorts of temples to different gods. And in these temples, people would bring animals, and they would sacrifice the, the, the animal meat to their idols so that their idols would do things for them. And so then what do you do with all these animals that are brought and killed in these temples? Well, they weren't dumb back then. They would eat the meat. And then they would sell the meat. The problem was that some of the Christians, those former pagans who had converted to Christianity, and perhaps some of the Jews, were eating meat in these temples, or they were buying meat from those temples, and they were saying, look, we're Christians. We're not here visiting the temple prostitutes. We're not here making sacrifices to false gods. We're just here because the chicken wings are good. I thought that would get a bit of bigger laugh. <laughs> and Paul says to them, he commends them, and he says, you've got, okay, you've got, you guys have knowledge. You have knowledge. Uh, meat is meat. And since there's no such thing as another god, you're right. That meat wasn't really sacrificed to another god. It's just meat. Then he says, but the problem here is that even though you have knowledge, the knowledge is puffing up. But if you had love, it would build up. Knowledge is puffing you up, but instead you need to think about loving others in the church. You could look in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. He starts to describe the people who were being hurt by the eating of this meat that came from these temples. He says, yes, you guys have knowledge. You know you can go in there, and in your own mind, you're not doing anything wrong. But in verse 7 of chapter 8, he says, but not everybody has this knowledge. Some, through their former association with idols, 
eat food as though it is really offered to an idol. Their consciences are weak. And so they're, they're, their consciences become defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat. We're, we're no worse off if we do. But he says in verse 9 of chapter 8, take care. You guys aren't showing care. He says, be careful that this right of yours to eat meat does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees that you have knowledge eating an idol's temple, eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to also eat food sacrificed to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother who, for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers, you are wounding their consciences when it's weak. And when you do this, he says, you sin against Christ. Whenever you misuse your freedom, he says, you are sinning. You're playing fast and loose with temptation. You think you're justified, but you're actually hurting people. You're destroying them. You're wounding them. You're causing them to be defiled. He says, therefore, if food makes your brother stumble, or Paul says this, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat. Now, that's a pretty big thing to give up, isn't it? But that's how much he's, the importance of love, because he doesn't want to make his brother stumble. And so we see here that in the church, the believers were living on the edge. They were content to live very close to the edge of compromise, because they knew they weren't sinning. They had good theology. They had a right mind. They were mature, but they weren't loving those who might go into that temple and fall back into that mindset of idol worship. Well, then in the next few chapters, he says, I want you guys to remember another group of people who thought that they were standing firm, but they really weren't. He mentions the, the Israelites in the desert, in the wilderness. He says, they flirted with idols. And because they flirted with idols and because they were overconfident, they were destroyed. They thought, we're okay. We're chosen people. God has brought us out of Egypt. And then when they didn't like the circumstances, they began to grumble. Theologian Gordon Fee says that grumbling was really a testing of God. These Corinthian believers were in a similar predicament. They were confident in their knowledge, and they were oblivious to the fact that they weren't loving those who were weaker in their midst. They didn't realize they were destroying and wounding and serving as a stumbling block. And so if we look at our text today in verse 12, Paul says, if you think you're standing, if you really have confidence in the way that you're eating that meat, if you're really acting like these Israelites who thought that they were okay, but they really weren't, he says, if you think you're standing firm, take heed lest you fall. Now, there are great applications in that verse. Number one, don't play with sin. Don't think that you're smart enough and strong enough to handle temptation. Secondly, don't think that your walk with Christ doesn't affect others. Our walk with Christ is intended to affect others. We are ambassadors for Christ. The whole way this is set up is that your relationship with God is supposed to have an impact in this world. If you're part of the church, then you are a part of the whole. And the parts always affect the whole. So I uh, developed uh, a couple of weeks ago, if you've seen my ear, you'll probably have noticed that it's discolored here. Uh, that's actually necrotic skin. I, got, I had some kind of bug bite 
that it caused the skin in my ear uh, to die. But before, before the skin died or the tissue died or whatever, it hurt so bad. I, I really, and I hope it comes back. I don't know what's going to happen to my ear. I hope it doesn't fall off. But uh, it'd be like, uh, what was Van Gogh? It'd be like the famous painter, one ear. Uh, so I, I was bit by a bug, and man, if I even touched it at that time, it was like it was on fire. And Lonnie had a black widow bite or something, and, and uh, he, he can identify it. So if you even touched it, it was hurting. But then it caused the rest of my head to hurt. It would just radiate, and then it would make my, made my whole body just feel bad when I was dealing with this bite of whatever it was. So I was thinking, well, you know, how, how, how big a part of my body is, is my ear? And so I looked up on Google, how much does an ear weigh? And I don't know who did that experiment to determine how much an ear weighs, but an ear weighs between five and seven ounces. So I figured, uh, you know, did the calculations, and that's about 0.2% of my body. So only 0.2% of my body is this one ear over here. But you know what? When that 0.2% of my body was hurting, the rest of me couldn't operate. That ear felt like it was on fire. The pain radiating all over my head affected my whole person. So here's the principle here. You will either be a pain in the ear or you will be a blessing. You will be a stumbling block or you will be a minister. So always remember that your walk with Christ is intended to and will affect other people. And thirdly, the way to avoid this overconfidence is, is, is to think of others and not yourself. Okay? So if, if your mindset is, I'm going to live my Christian life and I'm going to enjoy all my freedoms, you probably think you're standing firm and you're going to fall. But if you get up and you say, how can I be a blessing? Lord, make me a blessing today. Make me a channel of blessing uh, so that others can be blessed by you through my life. That is one way to not become overconfident in thinking that you're standing. Always be mindful of bringing those who are weaker uh, to bring them to maturity. Well, that was the pr predicament. They were living, living dangerously close to sin, and they needed to show extreme care for one another to avoid causing others to fall and falling themselves. But there's also a principle here, and that principle is that your struggle with sin will never be unique. You may struggle with uh, different things, but we all struggle in the same way. And the Corinthians were dealing with this very difficult issue because they had all come out of this whole other system of worship. And they could have said, Paul, man, we've got it a lot worse than you guys have in Antioch. We've got it a lot worse than the people have it in Jerusalem. You remember we were talking about uh, Corinth a few weeks ago, and there's one writer who says, you could have probably called the, the letters 1st and 2nd Corinthians, you could probably call them 1st and 2nd Californians. Because they, they were just living out there. They were, they were the people making culture. They were the ones where, you know, it seems like all, the, the, uh, all of the, uh, um, what would you call it, like the, the things that happen in the culture that we frown upon, don't they always tend to come out of California or New York? You know, we'll, we'll, I'll see our firemen are leaving. We'll, we'll pray for you guys. Um, as, as they go off to a fire. So we could have called these letters first and second Californians, and they would have said, hey, you know, can you imagine being a Christian in California? And what do they say? They could say. They could say, man, think, just think about the COVID restrictions that they had. They could say, we have it much worse than everybody else. 
All this terrible stuff happens in California to Christians. We are definitely the minority here. And the Corinthians could have said the same thing. But Paul doesn't let them do that. He says, no, you don't have it worse. You're not alone. Look at verse 13. He says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to all mankind. The normal mode for you as a Christian is to be fighting hard against sin and temptation. Okay, that's what's common. That's what we all share in common. Now, you may not be going into a temple to eat meat, but you're all tempted, just like I am, to trust in ourselves and to not trust in the Lord. We're all tempted to be selfish and prideful and unloving. Even in the way that we experience sin and temptation is the same. And so I guess that's kind of bad news, isn't it? But there's also good news in that verse. That verse is a real key verse when we think about biblical counseling, when we think about uh, the, the, the encouragement it is to know that we do experience things in a common way. So what's the good news? Well, the first piece of good news from verse 13 is that you're normal. Does that make you feel better? Maybe I should say we're all abnormal. Um, but don't ever think that you're suffering temptation and, and sin in a way that I'm not suffering temptation and sin. You know, when someone comes to talk me, to me about a problem they're having, maybe it's a struggle with anger or pornography or pride or narcissism or whatever it is, you know, um, I, don't, I don't ever sit there and listen to someone talk about a problem and say, I just have no idea what that guy's talking about. I, n- I never feel that way. Uh, I, I just, I, I'd say, I've, t- I've told you a story before about this lady. So when I was in seventh grade, we, we used to have this thing called Disciple Now. And what they would do is they would take you, if you were a seventh grade boy, they'd take all the seventh grade boys and they'd put us in a house together. And the house that we would be in for the weekend would be, it usually was just down the street from, from my house. And there would be a youth minister who would come in and lead us in Bible, Bible studies all together at these people's house. And so all the seventh grade boys, we were there. And the lady that lived in the house, she said, well, our neighbor across the street wants to come over and share a testimony. And, uh, you know, she came in and it was a middle-aged lady. She came in and she sat down in a rocking chair. And about 10 or 12 of us boys, we all sat around there around the rocking chair at her feet. And she told us her testimony. And she confessed to us, there sitting in the living room there, she confessed to us that she had recovered, through God's help, from an addiction to green starlight mints. Now, I didn't know what a starlight mint was. I didn't know what, she, I didn't know what that meant. So I thought she was using some kind of slang term for drugs. I thought, oh, this lady is addicted to drugs. These starlight mints sound terrible. And she talked to on and on about how she could not function unless she had one of those mints. And if she was running low on having green starlight mints in her house, she would start to develop anxiety and she couldn't function. And I thought, wow, I wonder who her mint dealer is. And all, you know, all these things going through my mind. <laughs> Seventh grade, I had no idea, you know. But she told us, she said, but you know, boys, the Lord helped me to overcome my reliance on those mints. And she told us a great testimony of God's faithfulness to her. 
And when she finished her testimony, I was really glad that she had, this nice, sweet, middle-aged lady had decided to quit using drugs. <laughs> and then afterward, I found out she was talking about those Brock's mints that you bought at Kroger. She was talking about just mints. And I thought to myself when I heard that, I said, that's the weirdest thing I've ever heard. That's what seventh grade Chad thought. <laughs> and I'll be honest with you, ever since I was in seventh grade, when I see a bowl of those green starlight mints, I look at them with suspicion. <laughs> but now think about it now that I'm 47. And now I've dealt with anxiety. I've dealt with fear. I've understood my tendency to depend on things like my bank account or Melissa or my children. And so, looking back now, even though I've never struggled with starlight mints, I understand exactly what that lady was going through. For her, it was starlight mints. And she did not think she could live without them. But it could have been meat from a temple, it could have been a pill. It could be a drink, it could be a person, but we get it, don't we? Because we're all in the same boat. We're normal. When we, even if you have this weirdest thing, and then once we've gone through those struggles, we can say, yes, that's not something I've struggled with, but I understand the struggle. And that way we're all normal. Uh, that's just a normal experience of, of dealing with temptation and sin. Second, it's good news that humans have a common experience because that means we can help each other. We can relate to each other. This is the foundational idea to ministry and to discipleship and to counseling. How could you help someone who is broken if you didn't understand what it's like to be broken? So the predicament is sin is always at hand. And that our sinfulness or our faithfulness is always going to affect others in the body. The principle, though, is that we're all in this together. And the experience with sin is common. That means we're normal. That means we can help each other. But there's another uh, piece of good news here about our struggle with sin, which is the third point. is we see sin coming, and sometimes people feel like it's just overwhelming. There's nothing I can do to, to not sin. I'm going to encounter this temptation, and I'm going to lose. But our third point, our third bit of good news about the temptation that is common to all man is that sin is resistible. Sin is re resistible. Why is that? Well, we experience sin commonly, but we're also commonly blessed with God's provision to escape and resist sin when we're tempted. Now, we live, as we've talked about in our Sunday night class, we live in a therapeutic, psychologized society where what tends to happen is, is for a lot of our sins, just people say, well, that's not your fault. That just, you know, you, that's the way you're raised. That's not your fault. That's because you're, you know, this happened to you or this circumstance is going on or whatever it is. And we tend to shift the blame when we're tempted. But the, the grace of God gives us a blessing, which is provision to actually escape and resist sin when we're tempted. We don't just have to blame it on other people. We can choose not to sin. That's a promise that all believers have. We can resist sin when we're tempted. Now, when we look at verse 13... There's a, a word picture that's developed 
And the word is translated escape. That word escape paints a picture of an army that is trapped in a battlefield. And you can imagine a battlefield, a mountainous battlefield, rugged terrain, and that army or that small band of soldiers uh, being ambushed manages to escape defeat through a mountain pass. So maybe when I read verse 12, I think, um, I guess some people could read verse 12 and say, well, I guess I'm always feeling like I can stand firm. But I think most of us don't feel that way. I think most of us, when we encounter temptation and sin, we think, look, I don't have a problem thinking I'm standing firm. I feel like I'm never standing firm. Look, a lot of us feel that way. I always feel like I'm about to fall into my old ways. The Bible has hope for you here. Don't fret. You're not depending on your own faithfulness here. We're depending upon God's faithfulness to provide a way. Look at those words in verse 13. He says, God is faithful. God is faithful. If we're going to just pick something in that, uh, those two verses to circle, that's what I would circle. God is faithful. It just, those three words bring the gospel into view, into clear focus. God has been faithful to His promise to send a Savior. And Spencer wore his... uh, a Christmas shirt today, you know, we're looking forward to celebrating that here in just a few months. For those who repent of their sins and trust in Jesus, He is faithful to forgive. He is faithful to consider the righteousness of Jesus as though it is yours. He is faithful to give you the Holy Spirit to come and live in you and give you a new heart with new desires. And Jesus makes a promise. He's faithful to never leave you or forsake you, even right in the middle of the worst sin and temptation. And he is faithful in verse 13, where the, verse, uh, the writer says, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. What does that mean? That means you have hope in every single situation. Now that doesn't mean you won't suffer. It doesn't promise that He uh, provides a way out of the suffering. He just provides a way out of the temptation and of the sin. It doesn't mean that you will have an escape from every hardship that will come with obedience. Sometimes being obedient and doing what the Lord asks you will cost you a lot more than the sin in the short term. Because being a Christian in this world will always be hard. But this verse promises two things. Number one, there will be a way out. Number two, you can endure any suffering that comes along with it. He will provide a way out so that you can endure it. That means any Christian can be victorious over sin. That's one application. But it also means that when two believers are discussing temptations and struggles, one can never say to the other, well, I guess there's no hope for you. (laughs) Melissa and I were studying last night about it. We were listening to to a talk about a particular uh, psychological diagnosis. And there's a, a diagnosis, and they were saying, this is the untreatable diagnosis. And that really is sad, isn't it? That they're basically saying, if you are diagnosed with this, there's no hope for you. The wonderful thing about the Word of God is it doesn't say anything like that. 
as long as you're breathing, as long as you're alive, now there will be a point where there'll be, you, there will be, you will die, and it's appointed once for a man to die, and then the judgment. At that point, it is too late. But as long as you're alive and you're sitting here under the Word of God, as long as you're breathing, you have a purpose. God has a good purpose for you. And we'll never say to a believer, there's no hope for you. You'll just have to struggle. Now, that doesn't mean now that doesn't mean that we won't suffer from certain things possibly for the rest of our life. But we're not going to suffer like the rest of the world because just like when we grieve, we grieve as those with hope. We can suffer as those with hope. Even if it's uh, something that's debilitating, something that's chronic, something you're going to deal with for the rest of your life, you always have hope. You're, you're never just at the mercy of temptation and sin. You can resist it. And even though you may suffer through it and it may be hard, what a promise that we have. He'll provide a way out. He will provide, he'll provide a way when there seems like there is no way. And we studied that this morning, didn't we? As Jonah sinks down, he says the seaweed wrapped around his head. He thought, this is it. And then the Lord lifted him up. The Lord raised him up. When there seemed like there was no way, there was a way. So remember, our sins may be different. The manner of temptation may be different. But the experience of being tempted, of resisting, of falling into sin or successfully enduring the temptation are all the same. Nobody escapes the struggle, but nobody is unique in their sinfulness. And sometimes people come into our church and they'll come in on Wednesday nights when we help people with finances. And you can tell that it's really hard for them to ask for help. They'll come in and, this is really hard for me. Sometimes they'll be crying. Or maybe when someone comes into my office and they feel like, what they've done is, is so shameful. And of course, we realize that there are consequences for choices. You choose to do something and you're going to pay a consequence for that. There are naturally occurring consequences to our sin. Uh, sin hurts us. Sin hurts other people. That's why God tells you, tells you what the sin is and, and to avoid it because, that's, because he loves you. He's trying to tell you how not to be hurt. He's trying to tell you how not to hurt other people. Uh, you know, when I was a kid, the youth ministry used to say, God is not a cosmic killjoy. Like, God's not just up in heaven trying to tell you uh, all these rules so he can see how miserable he can make you for the rest of your life. When you choose to ignore his word, you're basically saying, I'm ignoring what's best for me, you see? So yes, people come in and they've made bad choices, and sometimes we have to say, okay, here's the problem. You can't spend all your money on that. You're going to have to sell that. You're going to take that car back and see if that guy will take that car back because you can't afford that car. The consequence of your spending is that you've got yourself into an untenable situation here and you don't have enough income to, to support your lifestyle. Or maybe when someone comes in and they're full of shame and they've hurt somebody and, and say, well, you're going to have to give them time. Things can't just go right back to normal. They need time to realize they can trust you or whatever it is. But right in the middle of that, I always am mindful of something that I read in a, in a book that was about poverty alleviation, was that to remember when I'm sitting on the other side of the table from someone who's confessing their brokenness to me, it's always helpful for, or someone who's confessing their poverty to me, it's always helpful for me to look at them and say, you know what, I, I know you feel this way, but you know, I'm poor too. We're just poor in different ways. Maybe, to, maybe today I feel like I'm poor in spirit, and I'm having a hard time sitting here and 
and, and I'm having a hard time maybe empathizing or sympathizing because I'm poor in spirit, you know. Or maybe I look at someone and say, you're broken, I'm broken too. You know, all of us are, are struggling with that lack of shalom, that lack of peace in our life because we're broken. Our sin causes us to be broken. What am I doing there is I'm saying, hey, what you're going through, I can understand it. I can share in this with you because it's not something that just seems totally foreign to me. I understand what it's like to struggle with sin and temptation. I understand what it's like to endure consequences for bad choices. I'm with you in this, and I can tell you that the thing that we share in addition to poverty and brokenness is that there's hope. We can share hope. So we find ourselves in a great predicament, and sin is always close at hand. But we're also comforted by the, predic- by the principle that we're not alone, and we're not doomed, because we can walk in God's provision, because He is faithful. And he will help us to be victorious, and he will help us to endure any suffering when we walk through that valley. Let's pray.